Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic book blogger. This week we have with us Adam Bly, who has been drawn into an interesting journey in spite of his sins. His first spent He first spent about 15 years learning about the brain, mental illness, and forensic psychology. He then spent more than 15 years assisting the exorcism ministry in the United States and elsewhere. He is an expert on religious demonology and exorcism for his diocese and has taught priests and seminarians across the country. After being at hundreds of solemn exorcisms and working on thousands of demonic cases in some way, he has learned the ways people get into trouble. Now part of his work is informing the public about these things so they can choose whether to avoid them. In addition to seeing spiritual evil, he has seen spiritual good in the form of miracles and other extraordinary graces. And he relays some of those stories in his latest book from Sophia Institute Press, The Exorcism Fowls. Welcome back to the show, Adam. Oh, thank you, Pete. Glad to be here. So, Adam, we've talked uh, numerous times on this show about some of your other books, but for those who haven't listened to those episodes, what can you say to those who we may call deniers of the dark forces at work in our world? Well, I, I mean, I think that's that's a rational place to start if you've never had any experiences or heard from people that you trust that have had experiences. Um, you know, what I'm writing isn't about arguing and trying to prove that these spiritual forces are real or not. I'm just simply sharing real cases, uh, real situations that people have lived through and been freed from so that hopefully other people can benefit from that and not, you know, basically learn the same lessons themselves the hard way. Um, but, you know, I understand if people don't want to believe it, it's, it doesn't bother me. It's, uh, I'm not here to argue about it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, it's a universal human problem that's been around forever. Every world religion recognizes it. Um, and so, but I also understand if, if you're not religious or have any spirituality and, and you want to believe it doesn't exist, that's fine. But, you know, maybe look at the high, the kind of high bar that the church has for, um, saying that a case is real. 
uh, before you dismiss it and say it's just people not knowing what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. In the preface to this book, um, you state that you struggled with relaying the stories you've included in the book because you want to avoid encouraging people to interact with spiritual creatures, and we've actually had that discussion before in past episodes. Can you explain the real dangers with that, and what finally convinced you to publish these accounts? Well, the real dangers, um, from a Christian perspective, you know, God warns us to not play around with spirits, essentially. So we're, we're allowed to ask saints, people that we're confident are in heaven, to pray for us. We don't worship them. We don't treat them as gods. Um, we are hopeful, and we're allowed to ask our guardian angels to help us as we struggle, you know, in various things in life. But we're not supposed to call up the dead. We're not supposed to expect saints to start talking back to us in our head or signaling us with some uh, divination device like a Ouija board or a pendulum or, or divining rods or anything else. Like, God has very practical limits on how we're supposed to interact with the spiritual. And those are there to protect us because there are these lying spirits that will pretend to be your fairy godmother or your guardian angel or your dead, long uh, lost loved one in order to draw you into a relationship with them. And when they do that, uh, they get you to focus on them and rely on them for your spiritual information and comfort or even maybe power if they're, if you're asking them for favors. And once you do that, it's kind of like taking a loan from a loan shark you're you're now indebted to a thug organization that's going to lean on you and start trying to control your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and what finally convinced you to uh, put these stories to print? Well, I mean, one thing is, you know, when I asked Exorcist friends what I should do next with a book, a common response I got was case studies, that that would be helpful. Um, perhaps helpful to some exorcists that are new and in training, but also helpful to the public because, and it, and it is human nature, Pete. Um, if somebody just tells you, well, you, you, you shouldn't drink, it's bad for you, that doesn't really go over well with us as people. We, we tend to actually try the things people say that we shouldn't be doing. Right. But if I tell you that, if I tell you stories about alcoholics that I met working in prison and psychology, if I tell you stories about the train wrecks that happened in their lives and how alcohol destroyed them, that's much more compelling, and, and most of us will at least listen and think about that. Um, and so my hope was, given that our culture is becoming, and the West in general is becoming less religious, we're not sharing the the knowledge that we used to pass on to the young people. My hope is that in sharing these stories, people will perhaps be cautious, even if they're not sure it's real when it comes to dabbling in black magic or playing around with these things, at least they would be cautious and maybe consider not doing it. So that that's really the only goal. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us a bit um, about your journey, how you came to be where you are today in the field of exorcisms? Yeah, I got pulled into it through um, kind of advanced brainwave research in, in graduate school um, working working uh, towards a towards a degree in advanced advanced degree in psychology I had done a master's paper on hypnosis and changes in, in the way the brain organizes and moves information around 
And I had seen that in a, in a healthy, non-mentally ill brain, uh, you can induce hallucinations that are completely real to the person. You know, as real as anything you're looking at in the room you're sitting in, um, to them it's completely real. And so I was wondering whether any of these complaints of strange spiritual phenomena were just the brain tricking itself or maybe a person getting themselves worked up. And so I wanted to meet and talk with people that claim to have these experiences, which I did. And then I bumped into some specialist clergy that worked in this area, then bumped into some of the um, main people working in exorcism in the States back in those days. And it just started snowballing from there. Got invited to the International Association of Exorcists and learned from some of the old guys in Rome. And um, pretty soon was asked, here in the States, we had started some conferences to help train priests and give them a place to learn a little bit about this. And bishops, you know, continued asking me to help in terms of training either their priests in general or their exorcists. And now, here we are 15 years later, I work full-time in my diocese uh, for the bishop here and, you know, consult on cases all over um, and train here in the States and a little bit internationally. So it's just kind of um, kind of taken over my life, and I've given my life to it mm-hmm. um, because it's an extraordinary suffering that um, not many people are addressing. Mm-hmm. And many may not understand that exorcisms aren't just a quote-unquote uh, Catholic thing, although it's kind of ironic when you— when someone's uh, thinking there's something demonic, the first thing they want to do is call a Catholic priest. But can you tell us about the history of exorcisms and their place, you know, somewhat outside the Catholic faith, and and how it's really something that affects everyone, could affect everyone? Yeah. So, you know, thinking that it's only Catholic is a little bit odd. Think of it more like I don't know, cancer. Cancer is a universal human problem. Everybody in every culture and every religion around the world may deal with cancer, though, you know, certain cancers are more prevalent in different places than others, but basically it's a universal human problem. And, you know, each group of people kind of works on medicine and tries to find a solution for that that improves as it goes on down through history. Well, likewise, spiritual problems are not just Christian. Um, There are basically labels for the same deceptive spirits in every world religion. So within Islam, there are exorcists, and they refer to them uh, as either jinn or shaitan, and they quote the Quran in in order to try to drive them out of people. Um, Within Judaism, depending certain sects of Judaism, don't really deal with spirits, but certain sects uh, deal with these spirits. They refer to them usually as dibbuk, and they have their own rights for driving them out of people. Uh, even Buddhism, depending on the sect of Buddhism or the type of Buddhism, uh, there are Buddhist exorcists. They refer to these as animal spirits. Uh, Native American tribes certainly have an understanding of uh, these deceptive and dangerous spirits and various rights, depending on the tribe, to try to get rid of it. Um, their approach can be very different. There's certain tribes where the medicine man tries to pull the spirit into themselves to get it away from the person and then go self-expel it later, um, which, you know, is a kind of a risky approach. Mm. Um, you know, and then, of course, in India, various Hindu uh, variations of Hinduism, tons of acknowledgement of this type of thing. So it's everywhere. 
Um, it's just because people have seen the movies that they think it's a Catholic thing or a Christian thing. Now, all that being said, Pete, um, it does seem that the Catholic Church has a particular efficacy, a particular ability to deal with these things. And in and in many parts of the world, other religions, when they come across a full-blown case of possession, they do tend to bring them to the Catholics um, because a lot of other methods essentially just agitate the spirit but don't get rid of it. So um, Jesus giving that full authority to the apostles, which is passed on to the bishops today, seems to be kind of the the key difference with the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. So can you go a bit into that sensationalized—the difference between the sensationalized Hollywood version of the demonic and, and reality? Well, you have to remember, first off, uh, and and I think it's hard for a lot of people to to fully understand this, but Hollywood, just because it's on a screen doesn't mean it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, again, kind of a, a foible or a fault in our human nature. If we see it on a big screen, it seems authoritative and compelling. And these days, of course, it's the small screen of the phone and YouTube videos. It seems compelling if somebody says something with confidence, but that doesn't mean it's true. And Hollywood, by and large, is writers and producers who have zero interest in making theologically accurate depictions of anything. Their only goal is to sell projects to make money. And the companies that actually broadcast the projects, their only goal is to sell advertising to make money. They're not doing things to try to give a proper education to the viewer. But the viewer just assumes because it's on a screen, it must be true to some extent. Even with fictional shows, I've, I've bumped into people that have adopted practices from clearly fictional shows as if those work, quote-unquote. So when Hollywood does something, they, they amp everything up, and they simplify it, too. Um, you know, an exorcism of a person can take weeks, months, or years of weekly sessions, but Hollywood needs to, you know, make a neat and tidy beat in a story or scene in a story that fits with, you know, this program that's going to be 41 minutes long or, or a movie. So it's going to be a two or three minute or five minute scene in a movie and they're going to end it because that's what fits the entertainment format. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to portray it accurately. So though they may consult with people that actually do this to get some tips to make it a little bit accurate, but then they're going to amp everything up and change it. And so, yeah, there's there's quite a bit of difference between what people see in the movies and the reality. Now, there are rare extreme cases. The manifestations are usually not super dramatic, though there are cases where they are. Like, levitation is very rare. It's maybe one in 200 cases. You may never see it in your whole career. Um, but it does happen. So, but heads don't completely spin around. Though I've seen bones dislocate spontaneously, and then when the spirits switch, suddenly they're back in place. Um, and it's not just you know maybe seeing it from the wrong angle, like it's clearly dislocated. Um, so there are strange and extreme things that happen, but they're fairly rare. But Hollywood makes it seem like every single case is you know completely over the top. Mm-hmm. And another thing I think that Hollywood, as you mentioned, to to 
boil it down into their two hour time frame of telling a story, you know, some of these, and you relay this in the book as well, some of these uh, cases take multiple um, sessions to resolve. It's not just a one and done deal. Sure. It, that would be incredibly rare that it would be one or a few. If somebody's actually possessed, usually they've been possessed for 10, 20 or more years. By the time they're coming for help, there are many, many, many demons there, not just one. And the person has to work through their own spiritual conversion of realizing to what extent they open the doors to this and maybe invited it, repent of those things. And, and so it's resolved kind of like you're peeling an onion layer by layer over time. It's not just one big thunderclap and it's done. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book, you cover a lot of ground. Uh, you do talk about the, you know, the history of exorcisms, and then it comes to the real um, meat of the book and intent of the book was the actual stories you tell, and they they vary in length. Um, obviously, you know, you you wrote them, but for listeners, they vary in length from, you know, a short couple pages to some that are a little longer. And mm-hmm. looking at some of them. Um, as we speak today, can you tell us a bit about that first encounter you had uh, with the young lady who was in pe- possessed and how that impacted you and really started you down this path? Yeah, um, I was looking into a complaint of a essentially haunted house or house with negative manifestations in it, and it actually had been documented in the paper by reporters twice before. Um, with fairly dramatic stuff that they actually photographed, which is pretty rare. But this was a violent haunting. People were getting physically hurt. Um, It was very negative. There was nothing pleasant about it. And in the midst of that, um, basically the person went in a state of possession, though I wasn't sure really what I was seeing. But these other voices were talking out of them and basically telling me I had no idea what I was doing. And they weren't going to, you know, they were going to do whatever they wanted, that type of thing. And they proceeded to to do so. They, they, the person never moved. They never got up from where they were, but this kind of mocking, um, you know, verbal taunting and whatnot went on for a while. And then the person came back to their senses at the time that they said, you know, they would relinquish this and the person would be back. And I was able to talk with them about what they experienced during all of this. Um, but none of the techniques I had learned in psychology that you might use with somebody who has multiple personalities or is having a psychotic break or is in kind of a trance state, um, nothing had any impact whatsoever. And that doesn't mean, you know, um, that doesn't mean it's possession. Uh, there are actual signs of possession that I wouldn't learn until you know, later on, this was my first brush with these things. Mm -hmm. But it was clear that the psychological methods had no impact. And looking back on it, the only thing that had impact was prayer. Hmm. And looking at some of these, you know, some people, when we go back to that whole Hollywood theme, uh, they may look at witchcraft as things like the Salem witch trials or something that happened back then and it doesn't happen now. Um, but it's still around. And one of the things that you bring up in the book is Wicca. What are the dangers of that, and what's its basis? Yeah, so Wicca is, um, you know, like on the U.S. census, it's now one of the religions you can check off that that's your your religion. In reality, um, Wicca is actually a 
created uh, concoction that Gerald Gardner, and a British uh, national, back in the 60s and 70s, uh, he combined some of Aleister Crowley's black magic, which is kind of a demon summoning and other very dark stuff. He combined some of that, uh, and he knew Aleister Crowley at the time, with a bunch of ritual stuff from Freemasonry, and then his own kind of made-up stuff. And he mixed it all together, and he called it witchcraft. He actually called the people that practiced his his magic Wiccans, and he called his um, system witchcraft. They got changed later, probably because the negative connotation of witchcraft uh and people started using the name Wicca, but that wasn't what he called it initially. And um, it's not an ancient pre-Christian religion or the various romantic myths about it. It has a very definite beginning, and any um, legitimate book on the history of Wicca will tell you all of that. Um, Other authors just kind of make things up to get an air of legitimacy in terms of claiming it's older than that or or something special, but it's not. Um, But essentially, the bottom line is it doesn't matter what black magic system you're using. All that matters is that it's an act of your will asking created spirits for help. So as opposed to the creator, which is God, Mm -hmm. you're turning to a created spirit in some way, whether you're wiggling your fingers or muttering some words or drawing circles on the floor, whatever you're doing, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is the only thing the demon cares about is you're asking it for a favor, and so you're entering into relationship with it. And what will happen inevitably is, in the beginning, it'll pretend to be your friend, it'll pretend to do favors for you, but then over time, as you get in deeper and deeper, it will start controlling your behavior and punishing you when you do things it doesn't want you to do, and it'll start telling you what it does want you to do, and it'll start dominating your life. And then pretty soon, you'll realize it never was your friend, um, and that's when people start looking for help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another another major um, belief that works its way into these stories are New Age practices. Um, you talk about various experiences that occurred to people, bad experiences, because of dabbling in New Age practices. Can you tell us what type of things these are and, and why they should be avoided? Yeah, so the New Age really is is the temptation in Genesis in the Bible. So so the New Age, the bottom line is what it tells you is you can be like a god. The New Age at its core says you have magical powers. If you just learn these secret things, you will tap into them and you'll get everything that you want and you'll be empowered um, and all of your gifts will be revealed or you'll just develop gifts by doing these practices. And so, you know, the the popular ones right now are things like the more spiritual versions of yoga, particularly kundalini yoga, seeks to awaken the serpent spirit in the body uh, that supposedly gives special powers to the person. Uh, Reiki promises through accepting the Reiki spirit uh, and being connected with the Reiki spirit promises to give you powers to heal other people in, in what seems to be magical ways. Um, you'll see some of this energy manipulation in certain martial arts that promises that through these practices you can you know, go beyond your normal physical actions that you might take in a martial art. Uh, and then it moves on to um, basically magical practices. And, and 
So Pete, like really quick, the difference between magic and religion. So religion or spirituality is essentially thy will be done, right? It's right. a submission to God's God's will. It's a submission to God's will. So you pray for something and you say, Lord, you know, please heal my father if it's your will, but you don't try to force God to do it. Mm-hmm. You ask for that, but you're submissive to what God wants, and, and then you trust God and you wait on God. Magic is a very different approach. Magic says, my will be done, and it seeks to give you the tools to force your will onto the world and other people. And so the love spell is designed to force the person to basically be romantic with you or fall in love with you because you want that person. It's not about respecting the human being and respecting their choices and their free will. It's an attempt to dominate them and make them a possession, essentially. The other thing that um, New Age stuff often promises to do is give insight into the future, so divining the future in some way. And that's, again, you know, like all of these things we've been talking about, you can also see them as First Commandment violations. You know, First Commandment is to love God and put God first in all things, uh, essentially. And by trying to divine the future, you're telling God, I don't trust you, I don't trust on your providence. I need information about the future from this other spirit here or this other technique so that I'll have one over on the other people around me. So the new age is all about a false empowerment and the illusion that you can be like a God. So as far as this book goes, Adam, you and I have spoken a a few times about um, your work. I've always found you to be very humble about it, even though it's very important work. You're helping people that are in, some pretty bad situations going through that. And you've also told me a few times that you are very guarded in what you say about it because you're trying not to sensationalize it. So when you produced this book of stories, I was like, okay, this is really important to Adam to be able to say this. So what is your greatest hope for this book? Yeah. One of the, you know, one of the things that a few people complained about Pete is that the stories didn't have a lot of gory details or they were too simple. But I'm changing all the names and locations and sometimes the genders of the people to protect people's privacy and identity. But the stories are what they are. I'm not embellishing them or adding things to them or or making anything up. And sometimes the case was very simple and straightforward. And and so there's not a huge, long story there. Um, My hope is that people will see in those stories um, or they'll see in their lives the beginning of that one of those same stories. So somebody will invite them to participate in something, and they'll think back and say, yeah, I remember I read there was a person that did this exact same thing, and it ended up being a train wreck. Maybe I'll pass on this, or maybe I'll think about this before I just try it and think it, that it's a harmless thing that, you know, I'll just do it for fun and see what happens. Um my hope is is that essentially it will stop a few cases from ever happening because the person will be armed uh, with some wisdom, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So, Adam, where can people find your book, The Exorcism Files, True Stories of Demonic Possession? Uh, they can certainly find it at Sophia Institute Press, their website, where you can buy books directly from the publisher, which is, you know, for them certainly the best way to to purchase them and support the publishing house. Um, And then you can find them in all the other regular places that you find books. 
And Adam, I just want to thank you again for taking time out of your schedule and spending it with us today. Any closing thoughts? No, just um, God bless your listeners. God bless you. And um, yeah, the uh, a last final thought is the rosary is basically the best deliverance and spiritual warfare prayer of them all. Excellent advice. And with that, you've been listening to Off the Shelf here on Redbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic book blogger. And until next time, God bless.